We're going to open again into the book of Titus, and um, Tim kicked off last week with the first four verses of this book, and I thought, let's finish it off, shall we? And uh, so we're going to look at the rest of Titus chapter 1 today. It is on page 1,737, if you're holding one of the brown Bibles, so page 1737. It is a short letter from the Apostle Paul to a much younger pastor called Titus. And uh, the reason why, why why is it important to look at a letter like this in a day such as ours, in a city like ours, and in a church like ours? And part of the reason has to do with that Paul was writing, he was was a missiologist, he understood missions, he understood how... um, to reach people groups and how to found and start churches. And uh, he was probably the church's first you know, dedicated, devoted missionary who dedicated his life to, to that call. And so he learned a few things over the years and he understood. He, he describes himself as a master builder, not in an arrogant way, but in the same way that some of you would call yourselves architects, like Randy is an architect. And she understands how you can construct buildings. And he understood how you build churches put lives together and what's important. And he understood at the big picture level, the strategy, the, how, how churches um, are knitted and what's important in their life. And so in a letter like this, when he's writing as an older guy to a younger guy who's now taken over this newly founded church on the island of Crete, he's, because it's so short, it's like the condensation of Paul's wisdom down to a few really important major things. If you get these right, probably the rest of the stuff will work itself out. So for a church like us, which is probably about the same age as the church in Crete, um, you know, we're a young church, less than two years old, and, and therefore we're at a very similar stage. We also you know, are, are at the same kind of stage in terms of wanting to develop leaders and put leadership team in place and so on. And so it's really just um, speaks so relevantly to our situation, helps underline what's important for us right now as Grace London in, in this city. And also, I think it has a real personal relevance to you. Most of you are younger than me. I, I think I'm the second oldest person in the church. Is that right, Leslie? Um, where is she? Um, and as such, it means that you guys have, <clears throat> you have decisions that you're making now which kind of form what happens in the rest of your lives. And you set trajectories now which affect you your own personal life and then your families and the people that you influence for years and decades to come. And you know that saying, um, you are what you eat. You know, if you, if you eat lots of Big Macs, you become like a big rolling Big Mac or whatever it is. You know, if you are what you eat, in terms of what you're putting in now, eventually it's going to sort of express itself in your body, whether it's your cholesterol, your waistline, um, these kinds of things. I think that's really true on a spiritual level. That if you think about your age and the direction that you're setting for your life now, the things that you count as important right now are going to begin to have a huge effect in decades to come. So what you'll be when you're 40 or 50 or 60 is largely a result and the product of the decisions that you make now and what you count as, as vital in your life. So what direction are you going? What are you seeking to do with your lives, and who are you becoming? These are the kinds of issues that a letter like this addresses really helpfully. And just in these first, we'll just read the first three verses, four verses to begin with. He says, Paul, 
a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth. So he's describing his life mission. I live for people to, to know the truth, he says, which accords with godliness. And that's basically a sum of the whole letter. If you believe the right things, the results in your life are change character and, and, and change life. Truth and godliness, doctrine and duty, they go together, he says. He says, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So what he's doing here for us is he's laying out the big picture, what it's all about. It's about Jesus, it's about the gospel, it's about your beliefs which result in your behavior, the stuff that Tim was teaching us about last week. The context, as I said, is this father-son-master-apprentice relationship, Paul to Titus. And what's happened is he's planted this church on Crete. It's a young church, and it seems to have been made up of a number of congregations all around the island. And now Paul says, this is the next thing that I need you to do. And he starts to unfold what Titus' job is to make sure that this church goes, gets well-established and becomes healthy. And it really comes down to three things in this letter. One is to do with what we call church government, which means the way the church is led, which is incredibly important for a healthy church. Then it has to do with the teaching, the ideas that are, are prevalent in that church. Because, you know, all churches differ in terms of what they emphasize and... and the colors and shadows of the things they believe. And then the third thing is to do with their life and lifestyle. What it means for these people to go from a total pagan background where they worship Zeus and so on to becoming Christians and the kinds of changes that need to happen in their lives if they're going to rightly follow God and what it looks like to be a Christian. The same kinds of changes you and I have experienced and are seeking to continually grow in. So it's leadership, truth, and lifestyle. Those are the big ideas of the letter. So what we're going to do is jump in and read the first, uh, between verse 5 and 9 now. And we're going to talk first of all about elders. He writes this to, Timothy, uh, to Titus. He says, This is why I left you in Crete. So Paul's traveled off and he's left Titus there in Crete to do a job. And then he explains what it is. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The New Testament uses this word elder for church leader. Pastor, elder, and what we now call bishop, overseer. They're all the same thing in the early church. They're the guys who lead the churches. And that's what Titus' job is to find and appoint those guys. He says, and then he says what they should look like. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So this is our first thing we need to talk about today, is leaders, elders, and churches. And I want to just wrestle with you for a moment about the question why it's important that we look at this and give you a few reasons why I think it's so vital. One of them is because the church leaders are are men 
entrusted with a kind of a sacred trust. There's a verse in Acts when Paul is saying goodbye to some elders in, in Ephesus, another city. And as he's, he's giving them his final words, because he's never going to see them again, and he, he, he lays upon them the sense of the responsibility of what they do, how important their role is. And he says words like this to them. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, what Paul's trying to do is lay upon elders an understanding of how precious their role is. I don't know if you've ever borrowed anything off someone or looked after something for someone. Some of you have borrowed my books, and they've returned having had a bath. Or, you know, I don't know when Brandon reads my books, but they they come back warped and crinkled or or bound together in sellotape, Reese. This is the kind of thing... This is what happens to my books when I loan them out. So forgive me if I seem reticent. They're precious to me. And um, when you borrow something off someone, you, know, you feel a sense of the weight of responsibility for it. And what Paul says to the elders there in that verse I just read to you is, the church of God has been purchased with his own blood, the blood of Christ. Which is a, a way of just trying to express to you how important the church is. It's why I love the church It's why I give my life to the church. Because the church, meaning the church broadly, but also this church, you, brothers and sisters, have been purchased with Christ's own blood. There is nothing more precious on this earth than the church. Which gives you an idea of this sense of weight and responsibility for leadership in the church. What it means to take it upon your shoulders. Another thing that you know, just underlines for us the importance of this is that elders are kind of the fulcrum for church mission. What I mean is that a church is always trying to balance up its own concerns and how it can be a kind of a community, a pastoral community where people are taken care of, and its concern for the world at large, that we're not here actually just for ourselves. We exist for the sake of people around us. And it's the elders who sit trying to hold the balance there and trying to exhort people towards understanding that we we are not just here for ourselves, we care for one another, but we also live for the world. And so in Acts 13, there's this amazing moment when elders are gathered together in prayer and they're worshiping and they're fasting and then God speaks to them and he says to them, um, he gives them instructions, he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And what happens is, as a result is the very first missionary journey that ever took place in the history of the church. And it all began because some elders were having a prayer meeting. And suddenly God speaks to them and then they find two guys who are going to be their missionaries and they send them off into, to go and share the good news about Jesus across the world. And so friends, the right elders make the difference between a church being effective or ineffective. Another thing that you need to understand as well, just to underline the importance of this, is that I think that the, even if very few people relatively in churches are elders, you know, they, they tend to be a small group within a much bigger church, Paul also says, look, it's a really good thing to aim towards for any, any guy in the church. He says, in, in 1 Timothy, he says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. In other words, if you set it as your goal to grow up into the kind of godliness we're about to look at in this description of an elder's life, he says you're designing something very noble. 
something which will get a hold of you and get into your spirit and grab hold of your heart and transform the way you understand your place in the world, your sense of calling in the world, and your sense of what you're here to do. And so it has a real resonance and relevance with all of us if we want to live lives for God. And I'll say a last thing about it is that when we read what Paul describes about elders here, yes, it's meant to be true, especially of church leaders, but it's meant to be true of every single Christian in, in this room. That these descriptions and what we're aiming towards are just descriptions of what it means to live a godly life. And so let me break it down for you. What is he looking for? These are kind of like entry requirements or qualifications. It's a little bit like how if you were to sign up for the army, you know, we'd probably go on their website beforehand, especially if you were going into a particular elite troop like the paratroopers, and you would check out what do I need to be able to do to get into boot camp? You know, how many press-ups do I need to do? How far do I need to be able to run? What do I need to be able to carry and how many hills do I need to be able to carry it up in order to demonstrate that I have a commitment to this? Or, or if you're trying to get into like a, a top university for your master's or your PhD or whatever, then you know what require, what's required of you to get in. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. He says, this is kind of the, the, the line. This is the benchmark of what we're looking for when we're looking for people in the church who are, who are meant to be standout and godly so as to be able to lead the church. And it breaks down to three things I want to show you. The first is that they're meant to be great leaders. He says in um, verse 6, If anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Now, what's going on here? When he says, when I'm saying to you, the first thing is that their leadership ability. You've got to understand that this isn't about um, charisma. You know, when we think about what it makes a great leader these days, we tend to think about personality about being a kind of type A personality, like the silverback gorilla in the room who tells everyone what to do, or somebody who's just got that magnetic force field where everyone just is sucked into their influence and their power and their personality. And actually, in the, in the New Testament, those things count for next to nothing. Because what he's telling us here about leadership is actually, it's much more like down-to-earth and simple. It's like he's got to be above reproach, which means that you know, he doesn't bring shame on, on the family. He's got to have one wife, or more literally, he's got to be a one-woman man, which means that he has a desire only to pursue and to cherish and to nurture and to love his wife. And he's got to have children who are godly, which means it's the test, really, of whether he's able to be a pastor of anyone because he's got to be a pastor of his own, his own kids. I was listening to a guy, Matt Hosier, yesterday, and he says, actually, I think we could add to that that before he looks after children, he's got to have been able to look after a dog. Now, I never had a dog, but I had rats. I had, <laughs> I had stick insects, and uh, I weeped when one of my stick insects went missing as a child. That's my compassion, pastoral heart coming through even at a young age. But um, what I'm trying to help you to see, friends, is actually the key word here is when he says, as God's steward... The word is actually household manager. You understand that in the ancient world, in the, the society where he's writing, the household was the center of everything. Business came out of the house. Children were raised and educated in the house. Servants worked in the house. And, came, worked, and everything happened in and through the household. And the household manager was the one who was qualified to make things run well. And what he says is, the church is like a household. And so you look for guys who can run their own houses well to find guys who are going to be good at helping run the church well. 
And if you don't see a crossover, then, then they're not really able to lead the church. So it's a little bit like God saying, look, you know, if you have children, one of the things you've got to consider at some point is who are going to be the legal guardians of your children. You know, if you were to go away or, God forbid, you're to die, who looks after your children when you're not there to do it? And you think, well, who would I entrust my precious son or daughter to? Now, that's kind of how God's looking at it here. He's saying the church is his daughter, his precious daughter, and his household. And therefore, who can he entrust it to? It's people who've already shown that they're capable of doing it in their own little household, so they're going to look after God's really well. Now, this gives us an amazing insight and window into what the Bible thinks Christian maturity is. We tend to associate Christian maturity with what you could call power. In other words, like, Doing mighty things for God, being able to um, you know, accomplish great things, whether it's in changing society or helping churches to grow or in your ability in, in, on the platform or whatever those kinds of things are. And actually in the New Testament, maturity is just whether you can have a happy marriage and raise some kids well, to love Jesus and to walk with him and not to go crazy, and whether you can... You know, just take care of the simple things. Maturity is just really ordinary stuff. I want to keep laying this on, and I've talked to you about this before, but it's so important that we, we, we bring our eyes down a little bit, that it's so much not about your gifts. It's far more about becoming the kind of faithful, stable people that society needs. We're in a, a world which is broken because families are crumbling apart, People are suffering with the, 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 the fallout of insecurity and rejection and pain. And people use and abuse each other in relationships. They go out for a while and then trash each other on the trash heap. And what's needed is not just more charisma. What's needed is godliness when, it, when, it really, when the rubber hits the road in terms of just stability, ordinary faithfulness, the ability to commit to one person for your life. And that's why Paul says they've got to be good household managers. That's the first thing. The second thing is, he says about them is that they've got to be just sort of godly in a kind of a holiness sense. Because he goes on, he says that the, 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 the elder must be um, above reproach. He must be, in verse 7, not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So he gives us five negatives there and he's about to give some positives. And what struck me about these when I was reading them is just how, actually, when you look at these things, they're actually pretty much the, the job description or the kind of what you need on your CV if you're going to get ahead in the city or in, 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 in a great city like London. You know, if you're a little bit arrogant, if you're a little bit self-confident, it's going to help you, right? Or if you're quick-tempered, you know, you know your mind and you speak it, it's going to help you because people aren't going to be able to walk all over you. If you're not necessarily a drunkard, but let's say you know how to party with the, with, with the best of them. or Violent, not in the sense of physically, but you can, you can run an office and you can, you can talk someone down. and You can, you can um, oppose, oppose wrong deals when, they don't ha- when they're not going your way or whatever. And greedy for gain. Wow. If you are ambitious and hungry and want to accumulate things for yourself. These are the very things that the world looks for in successful people. And Paul says, we want nothing of that in the church. That's the stuff which absolutely disqualifies you from leadership in the church. It's the stuff which makes you useless 
to Christ. Because as a leader, you can't be arrogant as though it's about you and your gifts. And you can't be greedy for gain as though there's anything to gain for yourself in, in laying your life down for Christ. And then he, he flips it around to the positives. And what does godliness look like? And he says, well, they've got to be hospitable, verse 8. This isn't, by the way, being able to get your mates around on a Friday night for beer and pizza and watch a movie. In the New Testament, when it talks about hospitality, it has in mind the whole Middle Eastern background of what hospitality meant. You can read a number of stories in the Old Testament which shed light on this. That Let's say you live in a small town and a stranger comes into town one day. If that stranger has no money or nowhere to stay, they have to sleep in the market square. But a hospitable person is someone who says... My house is open to you. You can come and eat at my table with my children and sleep in my spare room and we'll take care of you while you're in town. Now the reason why the New Testament, this is such a vital gift, is because the church of Jesus Christ does not exist just to be friends with one another, but we exist for people who are outside our walls who need to come and find family, who need to find their home. And I look at a city like London, I see... You see just profound desperation and loneliness and isolation and brokenness. We see people wandering around, as Jesus put it, like sheep without a shepherd. That, and you know, we when we go and give out the salt leaflets on Friday morning, you know, when Jesus said those words, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. I just think that's the look on everyone's face outside Waterloo Station as they're on their way to work. And people are hungry for a sense of being able to come to a place of rest, being able to come home. Which is why this gift, this gift of hospitality, this gift that says I love the stranger and I want the stranger to find the place of home in the church is so important. It's why I think elders in a church like ours are the guys who turn up at 10.30 on a Sunday morning. Just want to get that one in there. So (laughs) come and welcome people and love people and make them feel like they're a part of the family. And then he goes on, he says, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And if I want to sort of capture all of those words for you into one thing, I think it's speaking of self-mastery, the ability to lead yourself. And this is the hardest thing, isn't it? Because to lead others is one thing. I think many of us, especially those of you who have a personality that tilts this way, are able to tell other people what to do and able to offer guidance and instruction and management and all that kind of thing. But don't we know that the hardest thing in the world is to lead yourself on a day-to-day basis? To get yourself out of bed when you intend to. To pay your bills and to run your finances and to stay fit and eat well and to love your friends and to love other people and to to um, be studious and hardworking and all the things which we feel we constantly fall down on. And in the New Testament, it says, well, for a person to be maturing in godliness so that they can lead others, they have to be a person who's able to lead themselves first, which is why he says things like self-control and discipline and holiness and all this kind of stuff. And so I want to invite you just to look in on your own heart and say, if you have a desire to be useful to God, it always begins with the ability to lead yourself. The ability to keep humbly offering yourself to God and saying, God, change me. I surrender to you. I want you to make me more godly. I want you to change my heart. And then there's a third aspect. He says, 
that leaders in the church, especially elders, they have to be kind of courageous thinkers and teachers. Because he goes on, he closes this bit off, he says in verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound or healthy doctrine, healthy teaching, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I know that we tend to, we tend to separate out leaders and intellectuals or thinkers. There's a few you know, uh, notable exceptions who buck that trend, but we tend to think of them as in two different camps. There's the guys who like to read and think, who are kind of in the ivory towers, not leading anyone or anything. And then there's the guys who are out in the real world doing the real stuff. And the amazing thing in, in the church is that they put such a great weight and on the importance for all of us as Christians to be growing in, in our knowledge and understanding of God and his word. Which is a, an amazing sense of privilege to be entrusted with the Bible, but also to be able to aspire that every one of us, I think every Christian should aim to be a kind of a scholar of God's word, to understand the basics and be able to articulate them for yourself. I, one of, this is one of the things I always so admired about my dad. My, many of you have met my dad. He's been a pastor for many years. And uh, when me and my brothers were boys, one of the things that we could always rely upon was his ability to, to teach us what he believed and why. So we would ask all kinds of questions and we would expect a convincing response. And so much of the way that he sought to parent us was less about laying down rules. In fact, when I think back to my, my childhood, I, I honestly can't think of any rules that were given to us. Like, you must, you're not allowed to do this, or you must come in at this point, or any of these kinds of things. It just wasn't part of the culture of our family. But instead, the way he, he sought to help raise us up was by teaching us to think, show us the principles, teach us about what, what, it, what godliness is and why we, we run after godliness. And so, so much of that came back to his own hunger for the word of God. You know, God saved him when he was 14 from basically a kind of, you know, a two up, two down, a poor, poor, dirt poor background in Liverpool and with, um, you know, divorced parents and so on. And when God saved dad, I can talk about him because he's not here this morning. He'll be here next week. When God saved him, he turned him into a reader. He started just devouring books about theology and God and the truth and the Bible and all kinds of stuff. And he went on to study theology. And as a result, you know, decades on, he was able to be the pastor of his own family and teach teach me and my brothers something about how to think and what God's word means and how it holds together and how we can, we're not afraid of competing ideas in the world at large. An elder has to be someone who, who's a thinker and also has the courage to speak out what they think. And so I just want to pause here before we read on and read the rest of this chapter. Do you have what it takes when you look at your life, where do you fall short? I don't ask that to feel, make you feel condemned, but I ask it because we have to begin with the knowledge of ourselves. How do I need to grow and how do I need to change? And where do, where do I want to grow up? And what decisions could you make now 
that would prepare you for the future of usefulness. Maybe you're not called to be an elder in the church, but I think all of us are called to aspire to some level of influence for God in the world. All of this applies to you, therefore. All of it does. And maybe your issues are more around character. You know, if you were to look at the physical requirements of entering the army, you'd be like, I need to go into fat camp first. I need to sort out this, mit- this waistline. I need to, and maybe the issues for you are character. You need to ask, look, how do I need to grow in godliness, in day-to-day godliness? Maybe you need to talk to someone who's a bit further on than you to help you, instruct you, hold you accountable, meet with you regularly, to be like your personal trainer in the faith. Or perhaps, like, for some of you, it's just as simple as you just need to start to you know more. Like maybe your character is like exceptional, but you can't you can't string two ideas together in terms of articulating your own faith. And I don't I don't I don't want to put too much weight on this, but I think Christians should should be people who at the very least want to master and be mastered by this book. Again, just to come back to my my dad when when he got married at univers- from university, uh, he was just graduating in Durham, and my mom had been working and saving up money, and she was good at like, handling her own finances, and they were about to get married. And on the day they got married, Dad had 50 pence in his bank account. Now, I know that's actually some, more than some of you have, because you're actually in the negative, but you know, maybe debt wasn't as common then, but he had 50 pence. And the reason being, every time, in fact, he went to to university for term time, he'd come back like about half a stone lighter because he didn't buy food, he bought books instead. And he'd, he'd used all his money on books and, and, and wasted. I'm not telling, saying that you should all do that, but maybe, maybe, just at the very minimum, friends, you need to like commit yourself to just being able to grow, whether it's through listening to podcasts and teaching, and whether it's just committing to a daily plan of reading the Word of God, or whether it's working through a few books this year. I think every Christian should aspire to this stuff because we're in a world where ideas are premium. Ideas that contradict one another on a daily basis. And everyone's groping around for someone to speak some sense of what, what can help us get through life and make sense of life. And Christians, I believe we have the answers, don't we? We look at the Word of God, we say this is God's revealed truth to us. It's healed us. It's mended our hearts. It's changed our lives. The more we understand and know it, the better able we are to help others grow in the knowledge of this. Let's read on. This is kind of the backdrop of why all this stuff matters so much to Paul. Why these elders need to be put in place. Because he goes on and says in verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So he's painting the picture of people in the church who are causing trouble and, it, and making the church sort of suffer under their wrong ideas. He says, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Harsh words. And Paul says, this testimony is true and therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. 
He's painting the picture of the reason the church is vulnerable. And it has to do with this, you know, what, what the New Testament calls false teaching. Wrong ideas circulating. Why do we need to talk about this? I know that talking about like false teaching and bad ideas is really not current and it's definitely not trendy in, in the church these days. You know, if you zoom back in history a little bit, things were different. You know, when C.H. Spurgeon, who was pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in the 1800s, when he was a boy, he learned his Calvinism. He learned his theology from a maid who worked in, in the house because it was perhaps just more normal for ordinary folk to love ideas and theology and talk about it. And even in my parents' generation, when they were at church, they, would, you know, they had charts that mapped out the end times. You know, they understood whether you were a pre- believed in a pre-tribulation rapture or post-tribulation rapture and all the rest of it. And we're lucky these days if we even have a clue what those words mean. Now, I know that there's something good about that, that churches these days are far less likely to fall out about minor points of teaching. We tend to say, let's stick to the main and the plain, which is great. And I, I'm all for that. But the bad thing is that there's just huge widespread ignorance, and which is one of the reasons why so many churches have gone so, veered so much off the rails, that, that you could search and search and find so many churches where you'll not hear anything that even resembles the gospel, the message of, of Christianity. And since our gospel is is words. I, I believe it's the most powerful thing in the world because nothing changes a life as dynamically and powerfully as the gospel that we believe. I also think it's the most fragile thing in the world because we're always one generation away from losing this heritage. Paul talked about it as treasure in jars of clay. He says, when we look at our own lives, We're just clay jars. We're not really worth that much. Of course, in God's sight, we are. But this is how he esteemed his own value. He says, I'm just a clay jar. But what I know, what I know about Jesus, what I know about the message of this faith, that's a treasure inside of me. And he talked like that in the context of his own sufferings. He's saying, in effect, that the jar can be smashed and broken and I, he even did gladly lay his down life for this gospel, lay down his life for this gospel. The jar is, is the less important thing, my body, my life. The important thing is the truth that we hold on to, this precious message, the message of God's profound love for you, that he desired you, that he wanted a relationship with you, that he wanted it so much that he sent Jesus into the world to stand in your place, to die in your place, to take his sins upon you on the cross so that you could be acceptable to God. And this message is, is the treasure we hold. But it's also the most vulnerable thing we hold because it's, it's just words. And they get forgotten, and they get distorted, and they get dismissed, and they get denied. The urgency then for Paul is that within the church, you've got to have this, a double emphasis. 
and particularly true for the church leaders. They need to be holding a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other hand. What on earth am I talking about? Well, there's a story back in Nehemiah, in your Old Testaments, when Nehemiah's got a job and he wants to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which were, were smashed and they've been broken down. The whole city is in ruins. He said they start by protecting the city. What they do is they start rebuilding the wall. But as they're rebuilding, there are these opponents outside the city who are not Jewish, who start hurling abuse at them and criticizing and trying to stop the work. And all they'd love to do is to break down the work even as they're beginning. So Nehemiah and the men who are rebuilding the walls, they get on with their work whilst holding a sword in one hand and their trowel in the other hand. Because they, they were equally ready both to build and to battle. And if all you do is build, but never do battle for what you believe, then you end up with churches, but churches which just are basically stomping grounds for the different ideas of the culture as it, as it is right now. Which is why so many churches are just a mirror image of the culture we're in. Everything the culture believes, the church also echoes. And at some point you've got to say, well, that... It's no longer a church, is it really? It's just a reflection of the culture. That's what happens if all you do is build, but you never do battle for the truth. But if all you do is battle, but you never build anything, you end up like one of these guys who has like these watchdog websites where they, it's like the Daily Mail comments section, and all they do is fight about theology all day long, but they've never actually done anything to love anyone or bless anyone or help the church to grow in any way. And friends, we want to somehow be a church where we can hold these two things in a wonderful tension. Where we're building, we're wanting to see people come in, find a home here, find their lives healed up and transformed here. But we're also fiercely aware that we protect what we believe. Because it's what we believe that changes lives. If we give even an inch on the truth of what we uphold, our church becomes vulnerable and crumbles and eventually breaks and dies. I was hearing again yesterday from uh, this pastor friend, Matt Hosier's story. He was in Athens last week, and he said, just outside Athens is the place where the Battle of Marathon took place. And it was an amazing moment in, in, in the history of the world, actually, because the Persian Empire in 490 BC was trying to conquer the city of Athens. And the Athenian army had to fight off this massive Persian army, way, way, way outnumbered. And if they'd lost... All that we know about Greek culture would never have come to exist. Socrates and Plato and all these guys who, whose, whose ideas began to transform the whole world as we know it. We maybe would have reflected more what Persian culture was like at the time. But because they won with the sword, what began to flourish in the city of Athens was everything that Greece is famed for even to this day. I think it's a beautiful picture of how the church seeks to live. We, we need, you need soldiers and scholars. You need, we need to be a place where ideas and truth flourishes in a beautiful context like the city of Athens, but where you're willing to pull out your swords if necessary. And I know that we get accused sometimes, especially if you're more like evangelical or more like someone who really takes the Bible seriously, you get accused of, of you know, being narrow-minded and whatever. And, but the truth is, like, if, if I'm narrow-minded about the gospel, I'm not ashamed of that. When it comes to the essence and the core of what I believe, the cutting edge of what has changed my life and what 
can change your life, I'm not conceding an inch. This is why this stuff actually matters. And why Titus had to find other men who agreed with that and were willing to defend the church and hold up the truth in the church. And so he just gives us a number of things that are true of bad ideas when they circulate. He says, first of all, that they're rebellious. In other words, they can't take authority over them. Whenever you find people who don't like to submit to authority, there's something wrong with their belief system because Christianity at its heart is submission to to our loving Father. He says, secondly, they're dishonest. They don't handle the Bible honestly. They don't don't talk to each other honestly. They don't handle their opponents honestly. He says, thirdly, they're greedy. Maybe for financial gain. Maybe for the praise of men. So much of what you see, um, you know, in terms of the circulation of ideas in the world at the moment is that we love the praise of other people so much that we're willing to change our convictions so that we will be accepted by other people. And I just think that's basically the greed of the human heart. People are needed now more than ever who hold convictions in the face of culture, in the face of personal loss. And you can only trust somebody who suffered for what they believe at some level. He says these false teachers, they're legalistic and licentious, which is to say they love to lay down rules for people, but inside their hearts are cesspits of all kinds of weird and evil desires. When we believe a pure and true gospel, that's not how it works. We don't get really rigid in law-keeping and judging each other and then allow all this, this, this mud and disgusting dirt in our hearts. It's the other way around. God changes us from the inside through our adoration of Jesus Christ and It spills out in love and grace to other people. And he says, last of all, he says they're just ungodly. I think that verse which Tim pointed out to us last week, that last verse, verse 16, is so potent. They profess to know God. so They claim to have some kind of deep and profound religious experience. He says, but they deny him by their works. You look at their lifestyle, and everything that they claim to know about God is clearly a lie. Their characters don't reflect God. And so Paul says to Titus and to his new band of brothers who were to be the leaders of this church, he says, your job is to rebuke these people sharply, to be very clear about what you do and don't believe and to set the boundaries around your church. And so friends, as we close, I want to just point this right back at you and try and help you to see what the relevance of all this is and how it sits for us. The big idea of Titus 1 is that churches are always vulnerable to destructive powers. We never take it for granted or or rest on our laurels that a church is going to remain healthy and full of life. And my proof of that is is quite evident. Just go and look at so many churches. There's so much tragedy out there. Churches which are empty, dead, and dying. And honestly, I find it one of the most heartbreaking things when I look around at the situation in London. You see so many whether the buildings have been taken over and sold off and become blocks of flats, and whether you go to the ones that are still limping on, and all you have are a few people who, they've forgotten what Christianity even is about in the first place. And soon their light is going to be snuffed out. And so many churches are such arid places, because even though they have the form of Christianity, it looks like Christianity on the outside. Maybe you've got a, someone in a dog collar at the front and they've got the right smell in the room when you walk in and they, they kind of have the organ. Or, and it looks a little bit like Christianity on the veneer. But you search and search for something, something to feed your soul and it's just dry. 
And friends, I, I speak seriously because this is always the trend when people forget the stuff that Paul's talking about here. And what's needed, therefore, is that every one of us looks into our own hearts and, and, and looks, looks at ourselves against the light of these, how Paul describes these godly elders and say, look, how do I need to grow and change? These people are good leaders in the sense that they, they start with what it means to be mature and godly in the home. They're godly in character in that they're warm and loving and disciplined with them, in their own way of living, but also just generous-hearted towards others. And they love the truth. And they can communicate it. And so I, I want to ask you as we close, friend, how, how do you need to grow What's the one thing that you should focus on this year to grow up into the maturity that Paul describes here? And who, who do you know who can help you in that? Surely you can look in, around in your life and find someone who's ahead of you in, in this area, who can be a brother or a sister to you and help you to grow up in godliness. Or maybe we can look at it from another direction and say, who do you know in your life who, who has the potential but needs your help? who you can help to grow up and to maturity in the faith? How can you encourage somebody who's on the right track, but maybe is just a little bit immature in certain ways at this point in time? Here we have just a wonderful description of what it is that God values in leaders in his church and why it's important. We're going to take communion now, friends, and I want us to take this aware of a few things. First of all, When we eat the bread and drink the wine, we're being reminded of why this stuff matters. Paul said that he spoke about the church of God as being that which was purchased with his own blood. So as we drink the wine, God is wanting to re-emphasize and underline and capture our hearts afresh with a fresh adoration of the church of Jesus Christ and why it's worth us giving our lives for. And then there's also the opportunity when we take communion to be in a posture of repentance towards God. God, I know when I looked at what Paul had to say about godliness, that there's areas where I fall down and I need to grow up and change and only you have the power to change me. And as you take communion, this is an opportunity to have dealings with God and to come to him and say, Father, I want to ask for forgiveness and I ask you to change my life. But maybe also it's a chance for you to offer yourself in fresh devotion. How is God challenging you to grow? I think it always begins in moments like this when you make decision before God and say, Father, as I remind myself of the fact that Christ died for me and that he's purchased my life, I want to offer myself afresh to you today. Take my life. Change me in this way. Make me more like Jesus.